So they would rather keep rents low and keep a building full than risk occupancy drops and, and kind of uneven cash flow distributions. And you see that rampant in real estate because it is, it's not truly passive, but it's more passive than running a business, like with yeah. tons of employees. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. I feel chance. like we've already had a podcast going on yes. for 10 minutes. The first for 10 sure. minutes for listeners, you just missed the best 10 minutes. Now we're finally recording. Well, uh, it's well, kind of a so go ahead, Kev. I was just gonna say it's I mean, it's kind of a joke when we start with guests that it's like we we have like amazing banter while we're catching up what we're gonna talk <laughs> about. And then we and then we hit record and it's like, well, my story all started <laughs> on a on a cold winter evening in 1983. You know, it's like <laughs> holy shit, dude. <laughs> So, Chris, I'm excited to have you on our pod because you run an amazing podcast. So I'd like to start with giving you an opportunity to plug your podcast. I was on, the, for the audience's benefit, I was on the Fort podcast a few months ago. If you're interested in small business M&A, I think you did an amazing job of kind of taking us through a full transaction and really picking my brain in a way that had never been done before. And I've listened back to that multiple times, and it's really helped me kind of even for myself, think through the, the process of business buying and the different kind of off-ramps as you had described it. So go check out the Fort Pod. The response that I got to the episode too was incredible. I mean, the number of people that reached out was unlike any other podcast or you know appearance I had done before. So kudos to you. So before we dive in, plug your very polished and professional podcast that is much better than ours. <laughs> Thank you. I would love to earn your listenership, the Fort Podcast with Chris Powers. I've been doing it for five years, 320 episodes, and I have the pleasure of talking Crazy. to folks like Eric and people all across the entrepreneur, investing, business landscape from all over the country. And yeah, it's been one of the highlights of my life. It's a lot of fun, and I've made a lot of great friends along the way. So I would love anybody listening to this to go listen and leave a review if you really like it. After you leave a review for Mundane Millionaires. That's, That's right. That's correct. That's right. You can you can find <laughs> it in the show notes where you can also leave a review. But um and Chris, what and anything else you're working on? I mean, obviously we'll talk about your 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 day job, your much more important stuff, but what any other side projects you want to plug? Yeah, I mean, not anything that I'm publicizing at the moment. I threw an event. I threw two events last year. One was a much bigger one, and then one was a, a small private one down at a ranch in Texas. And so I had so much joy doing it. I think the world, you guys do one, I believe, with SM Bash, I believe is y'all's. But we were just talking about Main Street Festival. Look, it's nothing novel or new. People like getting together. But I yeah. think in such a digital world, people like getting together even more because they spend a lot of time together online. And I don't think you realize like how great of a relationship you've built online until you see that person in person. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're like family or you're like a brother yeah. or you're already yeah. like a really great friend. And so 
some things I'm working on in 2024 that I think will be a part of kind of this overall, call it Chris Powers flywheel, are opportunities for people to get together in person more. And I'm looking at that through a lens of like, what's it like to get eight to 10 people together? What's it like to get 50 people together? What's it like to get 200 people together? Those are different settings. Yeah. And I really, really want to get good at uh, hosting and throwing what I would call an event or a get together and do those in a meaningful way. So that's kind of the only other side thing currently occupying my time. Oh, that sounds awesome. awesome. Now we'll top of the funnel for Chris is his, his Twitter, which is at Fort Worth Chris, where I think he just cleared a hundred thousand very well deserved followers. I think that I'm going to forever have to tether myself like at least a couple thousand behind you because there's just no universe in which I should have more Twitter followers than you have. So <laughs> where are um, you right now? Let's get you over the hump um, today. I'm at, I'm at 99 <laughs> and some change or 98. Oh, let's go. Oh, we're, so, we're flirting. Are you guys interesting people? We haven't noticed that recently. Is there a lot of drama in real estate? Yeah. No comment. <laughs> well, no comment. Go. Let's, if you go I on the internet, to, there's, there certainly just want, is. I want to go to one of the events and just be a fly on the wall just to watch you guys get after each other. But anyways, we'll, well, we'll Eric, leave that Eric is day. no stranger to online controversy though so yeah he brings his own brand of it to smb twitter i don't know what you're talking a lot of the people on there can talk a lot about more about real estate than i can it's it's not that exciting to me it's actually pretty boring but i will say this there's this also this this part of the industry where people love developing beautiful buildings and real estate something you can see and touch every day and you know, I joke for some people, their return is just a, as much the feeling they get from developing or creating something beautiful it is, as it is like the financial return. We're not buying things that are sexy. We buy buildings that you drive by and will never, ever remember again, but they serve like a huge need in society. So I don't fall in love with anything about our buildings other than the way they function and the way they serve society. And the P&L. In the in and the, the PNL in the, doesn't hurt. And those cap rates. I don't know what a cap rate is, so maybe we should talk about that. But <laughs> what's the best path for someone to get into real estate private equity without, you know, I, I think it was it's Nick who talks a lot about, you know, he dumped it all into a self storage facility and didn't realize in hindsight how stupid that was or how risky it was. His words. I mean, what's what's your take? How does how does somebody get break into the industry? I think risk is interesting because if I was to tell, if you were to tell me right now, like, hey, edit this PSA for this small business contract, and and I gave you guys one and me one, the same one, I would look at it as the riskiest thing ever that somebody was asking me to edit that document. But if I gave it to you guys, you'd be like, this is a walk in the park. Vice versa, you could put the same industrial building out there and we both go look at it. And I could be 100% convicted on it in five seconds. And you guys would study it for months and still feel like you were. So risk is like, how much do you know? And so I would never recommend anybody go YOLOing all of the money they have or putting a big bet on something that they cannot say they've put the effort into learning. The great thing about real estate is that it's really not that hard. I mean, I know everybody says that, but it's a lot harder to buy a small business that has lots of employees and emotions and and you're dealing with lots more people than it is to buy a building that in theory is like, can I lease this thing for more than it costs me to run it? I'm not saying it's not a little more complex than that. So I think if I was getting into it for the first time, 
Um, I would just try and learn everything I could. And you can de-risk yourself pretty quickly just by doing that. The last thing I'd say about real estate that's really great, you guys are market experts. You guys actually understand real estate more than you do just by living in the city you're in and like paying attention to what's going on. Tell me where you live again in Florida, Eric. Well, I'll be vague here. I'm in Southwest Orange County. So like the backside of okay. Walt Disney World. Yeah. Southwest Orange County. I, what's your address? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but if I went to Southwest Orange County with all the knowledge I know about real estate, you still know that city way better than I do. You know which side of the street to be on, which yeah. which one not to be on. You know, you know, there's traffic here at this point of hour. You just know all the things that are actually really important. Now, yep. I would know how to come in and try and break down a city and go, okay, here's what I'm looking for but you're always going to know it better than I am. And so I think most people don't understand how much they actually know about real estate just by being in society and learning. They like intuitively learn what good location means and what doesn't mean, which is a big part of real estate. So I don't know if I answered your question, but if I was getting started, I would try and de-risk by learning as much as possible. And we can talk about how you might learn things if you didn't previously know them. Well, what's, what's the better path? So you describe the two well-worn paths. You either go the industry route, 10 years with somebody, then you come out and, hey, it's all I've done is help Chris buy Class B Industrial, or you start the really small role, you know, side hustle style startup. What, what would you do if you're 18 again? I would probably do what I did. Now, I would only say that because I won't take it into like personality types and who I, the DNA is. I don't really think I'm employable. That's just like genetically how I'm made up. I've always been that way. I was a problem child. I was tough in class. That's just how I've always looked at my life. So I would probably do it the same way, just knowing who I am. Now, with all that said, there is a ton of value in going and learning from other people, almost learning on their dime, not having to take huge risk, but you're accruing a ton of value. And so if you're sitting in a job right now and you're like, man, I'm only being paid X and I wish I could be paid more. While you only might be being paid one thing, your value and what you're worth might be way higher. So if you choose to go take that leap and do that, there's probably you will be able to unlock a new stream of income that you didn't have. And so I'm always asking people like, what are you being paid versus how much do you think you're worth? And if how much you think you're worth is, is rising, that makes a compelling case for maybe when to go take the jump. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. What about... so? fundraising, right? So say I take the route to kind of start small on my own partner, like you characterize, and then I get to the place where I'm like, okay, now I want to go raise some, some serious dollars and take some shots. Talk to us about fundraising. I grew up in, you know, lower middle-class family. The idea to me a couple of years ago, going out and raising, you know, millions of dollars to do anything sounded really hard. Um, yeah. What's that path really like? And how, how does somebody start asking other people that are not aunt and uncle for, for money? And and maybe the, the better context would be, give me the context of where that person already is in their career or where they're starting from. Is this somebody coming out of a 10-year career in the business or is this someone who's kind of starting from scratch and trying to do it that way? Well, we can we can talk about either. The way I guess I'm envisioning is like, you know, I've, I've acquired a meaningful amount of doors and now I'm ready to try to take a big swing and I need to go yeah, to Chris okay. and, you know, other people to ask for money. What, what's How do they yeah. go about that? Yep. I think they go about, I mean, the first and foremost is you have to put, if you're trying to rise, raise like a discretionary fund, 
So you're basically asking for dollars that you don't know exactly what you're spending it on. You might know it's going to be multifamily in South Orange County, um, or if you're raising for like a specific deal. So that's one thing to note is like, am I asking people to trust me that I'm going to use their dollars right? Or am I at least giving them the ability to discern, do I like this deal or not? That's two different ways to raise money. So understanding that is, is critical. And what, what do investors really care about at the end of the day is one, can they trust you? I mean, that, and you can show trust in a lot of ways. One way would be obviously just being a good person, but then track record. Yeah. What type of track record do you have to skin in the game? The earlier you are in your career, the more skin in the game you have to have. That's just how it is. You know, you'll often hear people on Twitter say, you know, people that have been in the industry for 30 years, just go look at the biggest companies. They're not putting their lives into every single deal in year 30. It just doesn't happen. But when you're young or when you're early in the business, one way to, that I that would build trust is I'm willing to put up a significant portion of my assets because I believe in this so much. And that's and that's relative because if you're early if you're early career, you're looking at how much of my net worth I'm leveraging, even if that's a pretty small amount overall to the raise. For sure. And I think any good LP can ask, oh, you're, even if it was like, hey, I'm putting in 10 grand. Yeah. Cool. How much do you have? 10 grand. 10 grand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's putting it all on the line. The yeah. second is personal guaranteeing loans. That's a big commitment. I mean, you could you could argue putting in zero dollars, but personally guaranteeing a, a big uh, real estate loan is equal in a lot of ways. And that's typically what you're going to have to do on your first couple of deals anyways, personally guarantee a loan, unless yeah. your leverage is so low or you're having somebody sign on the note with you. So track record, skin in the game, and then some type of demonstration of understanding of, I actually understand what I'm doing here. And that's why I, I often tell people if they're first getting started and they live in you know Texas, your first deal probably isn't great to bring to investors that's in South Orange County, Florida. You're better off demonstrating, can I do something in my own backyard? Now, I'm not saying that's the total answer, but I found it to be the, the, the easiest way to de-risk, further de-risk a deal is to do something in your own backyard. And, and, and where does the debt capital come from? In, in business buying, we have a pretty well-worn path. The first couple deals are going to be SBA financing, 7A loan supported by the government. You know, in the absence of that, there probably wouldn't be money at all to buy these businesses. And then once you, you know, you exceed like the $2 million in EBITDA or, you know, I think it's pressed up to maybe like $3 million in EBITDA company target space, then you start seeing some conventional lenders and then it kind of opens up a little bit. What does it look like in real estate? I want to do my first deal. Where am I going to get the money? Probably a community bank. And that I, I would I would argue you should go to a community bank or some type of credit union, a local credit union. And you can usually I tell people what most what, what actually shocks most people, especially if they've never done a deal before, they're like, Well, I can't get a bank loan. And it's like, have you asked a bank? They're like, Nope. They just assume like they're I can't get a bank loan. So what I tell a lot of people just getting started is I would go talk to five community banks in, in town and find out what they're willing to lend you. And if they're not willing to lend you anything, why and what it would take to do. What most people find out is they do qualify for something or go call like a mortgage broker. But I would say start at a community bank. And then once you're in, you can figure out really quickly like, hey, what's your lending limit? 
Some yeah. people might say like, look, we don't do more than 5 million bucks for a deal. Okay, great. There's, there's community banks that'll do 20 million for a deal. There's also, it's not how much they'll do in a deal. It's how much will they do for a customer? So you can figure out, okay, I'm at, you know, Simmons bank. They only do a hundred million is like the max they'll do for a customer. And so you kind of know, you know, what you're dealing with there. Then there's other banks that again, won't do more than a $5 million loan. And then you kind of work up to regional banks, which can do larger lending limits. We really have never worked with a big national bank. I don't think we've been big enough. And candidly, our culture, like we've done everything we can to not have to deal with them. They're the toughest ones to deal with because unless you're a significant customer, you're just a number to them. Then you can go into private debt funds and insurance vehicles and things like that and lend outside of the conventional banking system. But your question was, where would you start? A community bank. Go meet your community banker. Go play golf with them. Go meet them at church. Go meet them wherever. And then talk to them and maybe three or four others. And you'll leave after three or four hours of meetings, meet with each one for an hour with a very good understanding of this is what I could borrow and under what terms. And I'm going to ask a really stupid follow-up, but you know, what is a, what, what's a community bank? Like, give me an example. Like I'm, I'm sitting here in Southwest Orange County, Florida. We up, up the street, we got Chase, we've got SunTrust. We've got, well, it's not SunTrust, we're Truist. We've got, you know, all the big box banks and they create like this on one, one intersection. There's one on every single side. <laughs> and, and somebody on, somebody on Facebook said they're summon they're summoning, they're summoning the overlord bank to come. I don't know. It was it's funny the way that. Where, where the hell, what is this? What is a community bank? I would say a community bank uh, usually has a couple branches. If you've seen that bank sign in another city, it's not a community bank. Let's put it that way. So this is something that's local. So this would be like Southwest Orange County. If they, they, they'll call themselves community banks or bank. You know, here there's one called Texas Bank and Trust. Like you'll never yeah. see another Texas Bank and Trust anywhere. If it's a brand name that you recognize across the nation, of course, that's a national bank. If you see that same bank all throughout Florida, that's a regional bank. But a community bank is just in your kind of region. It's kind of in your hometown. And they're really focused on banking people that are local. That's really their MO. And so they're looking to lend in their, in their backyard. And the truth is they know their backyard probably better than any of the banks because that's all they lend on. So they're really, they're, they really know the, whether it's the business market or the real estate market, they tend to know it well. What are the downsides? There's just limitations. They can't lend as much. But if you're doing your first deal, you're probably not coming out of the gate swinging doing yeah. a $50 million deal. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Interesting. I just, I just Googled a community bank near me and again, <laughs> I, I get say? like, well, I'll show, I'll show you guys on the screen here. It's like fifth, third and. I mean, it's not, I mean, there, I guess there's a community a few. bank. There's one called <laughs> Main, yeah, Main Street Community Bank of Florida. So perhaps that's our, who runs these community banks? How does it, I guess we're not, this isn't a bank conversation, but fascinating. Who, where, how do you start a community bank? Is that a good business? I, you know? I, I think it, I can't, I can tell you this, the people that own a good bank do really well. Like if you, if you're good in banking, it's a great business. And my buddy always jokes, but if JP Morgan takes you to a, a Dallas Cowboys football game, you're taking yourself to a Dallas Cowboys right. football game. Right. Or, or why does every tower in downtown pick a city have a huge bank uh, logo at the top of the nicest tower? 
banks do very, very, very well. It's a great business when it's run well. But who well, owns community say- banks? It's your local entrepreneur. I mean, it's local families. They're usually pretty visible in the community too. Very rarely do you meet a community banker that's a great in the community where you have no idea who the CEO is. Right. They're usually kind of public figures. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. They, what, what was the old expression about banking 363? You charge 3% interest. You give 3% interest, you charge 6%, and you're on the golf course by three. I think it was a 363. <laughs> it was the some banking professor. I've heard that. There's a, a Duke Law banking professor there. Shout out to the uh, richest person in, in DFW. The, I, to my knowledge, the richest person in DFW is Andy Beal that owns Beal Bank. And he's mm-hmm. a banker and he's taken it to the next level. But there's a reason why you also look at big family enterprises that have been around for many generations. Very often you see a bank in their portfolio. Interesting. What, interesting. What are the terms? So give us an analog that everybody will understand, Chris, the standard residential mortgage. What is the commercial analog of that look like? What are we talking about in terms of down payments, loan covenants, and the like? In commercial, which is what I would define as not multifamily, even though some people would say it, because there's loans you can get in multifamily that you cannot get in true commercial. So call it industrial retail office. Unless you're just speculating and really trying to get risky, your typical operator is getting a loan anywhere from 60% loan to value, maybe to 70, 75 at the most, which would mean if I'm buying a building for $100, if it's a 60% loan to value, I'm putting, or loan to cost, I'm putting down 40 and I'm borrowing 60. You'll look at a covenant that'll be called recourse. Uh, so that you personal recourse or otherwise known as personal guarantee means... I'm on the hook, Chris Powers, for paying yeah. that loan back. So if the property fails, I need to pay it. Non-recourse is the bank's on the hook. For, for lack of better terms, I'm not personally liable for getting that loan paid. Now that we can get real nuanced, and it's not just that easy. But, you know, you see you'll hear often, you know, take non-recourse. There will be what they call debt service coverage ratio covenants which means your loan has to be producing enough income up, up and beyond what your de- uh, debt payment is to meet certain covenants. Loan origination fees or things like that, that's not really a covenant. Whether it's principal and interest or interest only, and then it turns into a, an interest plus principal at some point. Fixed versus floating rate loans, which we can talk about. That's hot topic right now. You can get loans that float, which mean they just kind of move with the market, or you can get a fixed loan. Duration of loan, is it a three-year loan, a five-year loan, a seven-year loan? So there's lots of ways to kind of, you know, dice it up. But those are things that you go into. And what I would tell you is, like anything in life, the more scale you get, the better track record you have, the better you are at this thing, buying real estate, the better your terms are going to be. That's why the biggest guys in the game, sometimes you're like, I wonder why they could pay that much. One, they're probably great at operating, but two, their cost of capital is much cheaper. So if you're a little guy looking at a deal and your cost of funds from a bank is 8% and you're wondering why Blackstone can buy it, it's probably because their cost of funds is already six or five and a half. They're 250 bips below where you are already. And that's something a lot. It's huge. Even when you're probably buying a business, I'd imagine it's the same. Blackstone's debt to acquire businesses, it's much cheaper than your first SBA buyer. Well, I was just going to say, so, so let, let's 
pivots for a second because you mentioned it earlier and I want to dive a, a little more if unless you wanted to tie that out, Eric. I wanted to dive a little more into Fort Capital specifically and talk about your evolution because you personally started with residential and then you've you've ended up, if I heard you correctly, but you know, correct the record, was it class B industrial? Is that it was that the focus or was it some specific kind of niche within industrial? Yeah, so I will, I'll, I'll give you the quick story though. So came out of college in 08, from 08 to 15, I did everything. I developed student housing, built okay. multifamily, did land deals. I was just a jack of all trades, master of none. I was a hustler and I was willing to always kind of put it all on the line and work really hard. And at that point, was it always, always Fort Worth? You were focused in yeah, Fort Worth or? DFW pretty much DFW probably, predominantly yeah. Fort Worth, but we had some stuff in Dallas and Arlington and a few other places, but yes, sure. we were kind of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. We would have called ourselves market experts. Now what happened was as we were trying to get larger and we were starting to take, talk to professional investors, they would come to us. We would go pitch a deal and they would say, look, if we're going to give you $5 million for this townhome project you want to build. We would rather give it to the group that we feel like is going to wake up every day thinking about townhomes. Sure. With you, we don't know if we're going to give you this money and then tomorrow you're going to be putting out a fire at your student housing project and then we're going to be over here doing this. So what I really heard was you need to focus on something if you yeah. want to you know, grow. The second part was recruiting really great professionals don't want to show up to a firm where you can't actually really tell them what they're going to be working on a year from then or where they can't see a career path. Now, if you're a three or four person company and like we were early, people will join knowing like, hey, I'm getting in early and I'm just going to be a, a Swiss army knife. I'm just going to do a lot of different things. But as, you're, as the company's growing and progressing, if somebody's going to leave a big company to come work for you, they need to have security that you can A, raise money and B, like provide them some type of pathway with security that they can keep growing in their career. And so what we realized was if we didn't focus, we weren't going to be able to raise more money and we weren't going to be able to recruit really well. The third thing we did was we, we read the book Good to Great, which some people hate it. Some people love it. I would tell you it changed our life. It was the most pivotal book in our life. And it was what makes great companies. And one of the things that all great companies did at times that they were the best is they were hyper-focused. They knew what they were doing better than anybody. And then yeah. we could talk about the fly and everything else. So what did we do then? We said, well, what are we going to, if we're going to go all in on one thing, what should it be? Well, I think part of life uh, or business is knowing what you don't want to do. So by that point, we realized we didn't want to be developers. So that was off the table. We wanted to build recurring cash flow business. And I spent a year looking across the macro landscape. And you know, I could tell you how I made the decision, but it's not quite what you asked. It was just <laughs> class B industrial made the most sense. Yeah. It was something we felt like we could grow in. It was easy to understand, easy to manage, fit this huge need in society and had this huge macro tailwind behind it. And, and, and so we went to to interrupt the story briefly, yeah. uh, break down what Class B industrial is, though, for for non real estate listeners that are wondering what that means. It's a little bit of a broad category. There's different types, but it, it's denominated by the vintage which it was built. So call it 70s to like late 90s vintage industrial properties. Yeah, they are smaller and fit a different need than like a big Amazon warehouse facility. You know, my buildings are housing the probably the businesses that your clients are buying. These are the 
25,000 square foot warehouses and under. You might also hear of them called business parks, but yes, they are. And, and they are built in the center of these cities of these. Yeah. Boom. You're looking at it in these major cities. These buildings are on the interior of them because of when they were built. Yeah. And you know, they serve, I love, I love a, that you serve come up. trade areas. I love that you come up. So for the audience's benefit, that's <laughs> yes. listening. I've, I've, I've put on the screen. I Googled class B industrial pulled up images and like half the pictures are Chris, which is amazing. Um, That's so funny. But the, I mean, these are some beautiful buildings here, Chris. I mean, really some attractive. <laughs> yeah. uh, Frank Lloyd Wright that. would be proud. Yeah, for sure. A lot of clean lines that. there. I bet when I look at it and I go, that is like the most boring thing I've ever seen in my life. You look at it and you feel something different deep down inside of you like a level of excitement around those loading docks that like, I'll just never feel. Well, if you owned one, you'd feel it. Yeah, there you go. There it is. That's super cool. Uh, I love, I love the huge need in society. I mean, this is the companies that occupy those buildings. They're not building the AI machine learning, crazy stuff. They're building like the plumbing equipment that you need so that you can take a poop at your house. Like, Yeah, that's just the, a different the, way the of looking business. at the world. Look, there's one the, of our the, the pro- mundane, all that. look at that good looking guy right there. He knows his way around a loading dock. No, it's great. And that, you know, that's the, that's the the thesis of our pod here is that there's just there's riches in the in the, the niches. There's a lot of money to be made on Main Street doing things that other people don't necessarily want to do. And I think this real estate is a, a great example of that. So so very, very cool. So Chris, you, you've inspired me, man. I want to leave the law at some point, not right away, but I want to leave the law and I want to go do real estate, private equity, man. What's, what's the path? Like what's, first of all, what's the first book I'm reading? I'm like, I want to dive deep on real estate, private equity. What's the, what's the Bible I need to go read on the subject? You know, I, that's a funny question. I get asked that all the time. I don't have an answer to that. I didn't really read a book that changed my life. I would tell you a person is Sam Zell. Devour everything you can by Sam Zell. He really changed the way I thought about real estate in so many ways, which we can talk about. So I would start there and look, there's so many, I mean, honestly, today's world, like there's so many podcasts, I'd maybe go get your real estate license. You may never use it, but there's a lot of education to be learned and just getting a license. That was something I did when I was really young that helped. What I would do is talk to tons of brokers and start learning the market that way. But I don't have a great answer for a book. I never read one that was like, oh, I read this and it changed my life. Now, reading Sam Zell did change how I thought about real estate forever. Yeah. That sounds like an opportunity, Chris. Have you ever thought about writing a book? Not to derail us too much. I have thought about it. My partner and I, it's on the, uh, it's on the, it's on the bucket list. Yeah. Cause we've done so many podcasts on how we run our company that do extremely well and people always want more. And so we thought about like how to build or write, like how to build a real estate investment company. Yeah. So, well, so on, on that, l- let me pull a little more. This is maybe a little partially selfishly, but I think people will be interested. I- I'm sure everyone knows like those developments driving around your town or whatever that just cannot keep a tenant to save their life. It's just always looks like it's like, you know, one day away from being shuttered by a bank. It, it hasn't been kept up well, but like nothing stays there. The traffic's not right. H- how are you actually analyzing? Like what, what's the approach to go look at a piece of property like that and determine 
oh, there's some real opportunity here versus I'm going to buy a nightmare that I can't keep a tenant in and that I, that I can't keep maintained. Like what break down for us sort of the investment thesis when you go into one of these class B industrial to where you're like, holy shit, we got to get out of here as quick as we can versus I'm, I'm standing on a, on a gold mine. Yeah. So in industrial particular location matters in a different way. So when you're in retail or maybe multifamily location might mean being close to a park or yeah. it could be being close to a Chick-fil-A on a major artery that people drive by every day. And industrial location is a, is a function of what like major infrastructure you buy. Are you buy railways? Are you buy highway systems? Are you buy seaport? Are you buy airports? Because you're, you're usually moving goods and services. And so the second thing you would want to know is like, how much infrastructure population is it within a few mile radius of this building? Uh, customers that you could serve. So that's how you would look at location there. So if you were looking at a building where people were starting to move out of an area or there was new infrastructure being built, which was going to make old infrastructure kind of obsolete or like the rail system that was so important to a certain area is no yep. longer going to be intact. You would say like, we need to get out of there. On the flip side is if you have great access to infrastructure, to seaports, to highway systems, to train systems, and you know that's getting better, you probably know you're in a gold mine. If you are in an area that's developing a lot, so we're in Dallas, Kevin, so we know yep. all this stuff that's being built. Well, if you own an industrial building on a major highway, and let's say when you bought it, there was you know all these two-story buildings, and you look up 10 years later and you're in uptown Dallas, and now there's 30 story high rises, yep. you still have this, the same, you still have to service that area, but there's so much more to service. And yep. so when you're, when, when population growth is huge, that's great. I would look at other buildings and go, what are they renting for? What's this one renting for? And then if they're renting for that, what's the difference? So if a building's renting for $3 more a foot, why is it renting for why? more than yeah. mine? Oh, I might need to paint it or fix the roof or, you know, who knows what it might be. Sometimes the answer is it's just being poorly managed. Yeah. You know, a lot of families that own real estate, especially generational families, and you probably see this in businesses too, they just need income because they need the people, the family that's receiving distributions off that to not stop receiving them. So they would rather keep rents low and keep a building full than risk occupancy drops and, and kind of uneven cash flow distributions. And you see that rampant in real estate because it is, it's not truly passive, but it's more passive than running a business like with yeah. tons of employees. And so a lot of times we'll see stuff where it's like, we could just manage this a ton better. We're willing to let units go vacant, fix them up so we can increase rents. There's just things we're willing to do that a family that's taking distributions or a, an old sleepy owner that you know has a low basis just would never do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. As an sure. aside, I saw this great tweet the other day, and it was an aerial view of a city, and it said, you you know, and the, 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 the thrust was that you can see within a city map where the railroads used to run, even if they're not there anymore, based on how the, the linear path of, I guess it would be Class B industrial and the like, that was at one point along those railroads. And now, so you can look at like, you know, and it was a really cool aerial view of how it had, you know, evolved. And I just, I thought it was fascinating. So like the path of progress yep. there, like you described. 
pretty cool. Yep. I, I tried to find it, but I can't, I can't find it. Yeah, see, it's it's interesting because it resonates so much as I think about my own town. So I'm in Coppell, Chris, the, yeah. which I'm sure Ooh. you're familiar with. And the whole the whole west and southwest area of Coppell is a lot of it's class A at this point. A lot of it's like new construction and, and things like that. But I think there's a fair amount of, of class B as well. But I as I think through, right, like right off Highway 635 and and 121, right? It's a stone's throw from DFW Airport, one of the you know largest airports in the country. Like as you're talking through, I'm ticking in my mind and it it's it's resonating. It's making a lot of sense why I see so much successful industrial on the west side combined with the final point you were mentioning on the south side with Cypress Waters coming in. We've got oh, yeah. international international headquarters of major companies and and you know things to to service and stuff. It's it's really interesting because it's a you know it's a town of forty thousand people, but right. but it ticks a lot of those boxes. It, it, this makes a lot of sense. Kevin's a big Kevin's a big Capel stan. He loves he's a big Capel. I love Capel. Capel is the um, only thing keeping me in Texas. That, let's not <laughs> let's not like devolve too much on what we're talking about here. But well, this town actually, is literally the only thing keeping me here. You, I your, love your wife. Your wife Tara that's Henderson awesome. is the only thing that's keeping you in Texas. If we're being honest, but uh, we, we can we can <laughs> digress. That's, here. that's that's fair. That um, usually happens. Yeah, they have a tendency to make decisions. So, Chris, let's let's back up, man. You said early on, and, and I want to tie this into the where the market is today. I, you know, obviously, we got to ask you about how things stand in the real estate market, and you've got to be the authority on on how good or bad things are, which I'm sure you're excited to do. But you talked a lot about buying, or you mentioned buying foreclosed properties in nine, ten, and eleven as part of your, you know, the seminal part of your journey and i suspect that history is on a on a path here to repeat itself in a sense so i'd love to hear about your experience being a young investor and getting into distressed real estate and learning the foreclosure process because i bet that will be applicable here soon and then also to just talk generally about the market and where things stand two two very different questions but let's see let's see how you handle it I, I look, I think the answer is that real estate's in a, in a, I think it's worse than people think. It's also different than last time when, for now, last real estate crash, everything went down. Businesses were letting people go. Home prices were falling. Like the whole America was in foreclosure almost. There was really not a bright spot at the time. Right now, we just had the greatest S&P month that we've had in like a long time, November. Jobs have remained pretty steady. And the economy, although we're being told every day is doing terrible, like isn't actually doing that bad. Now, is it weaker than it was when we printed $7 trillion and everybody was spending like crazy? Yes, it is weaker than that. But if you benchmark back to like 2019, early 2020, we're still well above those levels. Now, within real estate, it's bifurcated. So it's when we real estate's a big word, but it means a million different things. So office right now, people don't, it, it, for the first time in history, we don't even know if they're relevant anymore. We don't even know if 50% of the office stock is actually relevant. You can't actually value it. But then the most, like the most expensive building in Fort Worth has a waiting list to get in it. The cheapest building in downtown Fort Worth, you can't give this space away. Nobody's going there. So you have things like that that are interesting, where you literally have buildings that are worth $0. One of the smartest real estate investors in the country was on my podcast the other day. He said, 
there are buildings in this country I would you couldn't even give me. That's a pretty staggering multifamily. Multifamily barriers to entry are relatively low. And the business model really encouraged people to take on floating rate bridge debt, high yield floating rate bridge debt for a year, year and a half, try and create enough value and then refinance into what's called a Fannie Mae or a Freddie Mac government backed permanent loan. Very favorable loan terms that don't exist in commercial real estate. It only exists in multifamily, supposed to encourage housing and support housing. So what you saw in 2020 was the biggest trading from 2020, 22 multifamily properties were trading at the highest levels in American history. And now a lot of those buyers that bought with floating rate debt and now interest rates are up 500 basis points are really getting hurt. And the rental and at the same time, rental rates are starting to come down because a lot of new supplies hitting the market families are starting to everybody when they had a lot of printed COVID money, we're all living by themselves, like a, a truly one person living in a one bedroom where traditionally in America, even maybe two people would live in a one bedroom or the housing would be a little more constricted. But when everybody had this extra dough, all these units were getting leased. Remote work was a thing. So you saw a lot of two bedroom units being leased with like a person in their home office. Well, that's going away because more people are going back to the office. So there's pressure on rents coming down. And then the last thing, and this is not a political statement. This is just purely looking at migration flows. There are places in the country that are depopulating because of government restrictions, regulation, uncertainty with government, high taxes, high regulation. And there's parts of the country that are flooding with new corporations, new businesses. You just mentioned Coppell. If we went through the list of, of DFW corporate relocations over the last five years, it's staggering. And so I think there's at, I think we're at a point, and I don't think it's permanent. I think some of these cities will fix themselves, but where, where geographic location, there's a big bifurcation. So office in Dallas is different than office in San Francisco is what I might say. So, but overall, Interest rates have gone up 500 basis points. All this dry powder that's on the sideline has pretty much remained stagnant. And I think 2024, we're not through the worst of it yet. I think you're going to see a lot of folks trying to work out loans, work out deals, but you have not seen this collapse of 80 to 90 cents on the dollar almost across the whole board. It's very much in spots. In our asset class, industrial rents were up 26% year over year this year. Wow. Uh, that's different than other asset classes. Self-storage right now is hurting a little bit because people aren't moving as much right now. They tend to, houses aren't selling because everybody that's got a 3% rate is never moving again. And you know what used to be a $3,000 mortgage payment is now an $8,000 mortgage payment. So look, there's a lot of issues. Unfortunately, as smart as we think we are in real estate, we're only as smart as interest rates to some degree. You go interest rate, you go raise interest rates 500 basis points, and you're not as smart as you thought you were. So, look, we've been in a recession, or we've been trending down since summer of 2022. We're 18 months into this. If you're looking at my cap deal, now we'll give you one bright note, and then I'll stop talking. We're in the process of raising our first fund right now. We're going to try and raise four to five hundred million dollars. Our investment bankers that are helping us raise this on a call yesterday said they think we're past the worst of it based on activity. 
There is a lot more momentum being teed up for right after the first of the year. People that are going to start buying and selling, funds that are starting to be raised, things are starting to kind of form for a more active environment because this year transaction volume was down 80 to 90%. Fundamentals were fine, but the, the capital markets are just dead right now. And they, they'll probably remain dead for a, a period longer. 26% in your in your rents, what's typical? That's very high. It's high. I mean, look, I think some of that's the macro around what we're doing specifically. But the other thing is this, like multifamily. Do you know what mark-to-market means? It means it basically like in multifamily, you mark-to-market leases every year. You know, Kevin, Eric, if you're living in an apartment, you're paying a thousand bucks a month, you signed a one-year lease. So the next year they come up for renewal, they tell you yep. it's 1200. So you're kind of always to market. But in commercial leases where you have leases that are five, seven, 10 years old, there's some leases that folks signed 10 years ago that are coming due this year where they were paying two or three bucks and they might be getting a renewal at 12 bucks or something crazy. And so the mark to market gap tends to be a lot higher because of the amount of time that passes from mm -hmm. when people have to renew leases. And then the pressure on our particular asset classes, they're not building any more of what we of what we buy, but as these population inflows come in, there's more businesses needed to support all of them. And so there's just not any new supply, but demand continues to rise and that puts pressure on pricing. And I don't hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't hate it either. Does that play in to an extent to what we were talking about before with some artificially low rates where you have these landlords that are like, man, it's 10 years later, this should go from a three, you know, three to 12, but that's going to destroy the business. I'm going to lose a tenant. So we'll, we'll actually just raise to eight instead of 12 when 12 should you see have been it, market. You see it all the time. So like if I owned the building as a private equity investor or a real estate investor, I would say, Three, hey, Mr. or Mrs., it's 12. They'd say, no, we're going we're gonna to leave. Okay, yeah. great, because I know I can fill it. Whereas the family might go, okay, wait, wait, we'll just oh, give never you mind, never mind. Leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. You know, here's one other thing. Uh, you guys aren't asking questions, but you're making me think of some stuff. Yeah, please the do. Please, please flow. To move, the cost to move has gone up so much. Like oh, when you used to be in an office and you would leave, like, your office would go find another office and they would build it out and it would be ready. And it was like relatively, I wouldn't say easy, but it was easier. Now, if you're going to leave, you have to like, one, it costs a lot more. Um, timelines have like doubled the cost to build anything. If you've built anything anytime recently, it just takes forever. And it's an arm and a leg to get it done. It's just the friction time cost to move is higher than it's ever been. And so you have a lot of tenants that just don't have the luxury of just moving around every five years when their lease comes due. Whereas you go decades ago, a lot of people just moved around town or they'd moved to another building. Or I can tell you as a company that's had to make, move into some offices lately and our, com our company's growing, the pain in the butt it is to go build out a new office or facility and move is increasing and the return on hassle is not worth it like it used to be. And so I think you also have a lot of tenants that need to stay put. Yeah. In our particular asset class, if you're a plumbing service business or you're providing plumbing parts, your customer base is already built in. 
So you're only going to move within a mile trade area. You're not moving across town because there's a vacancy or else you have to build a whole new customer base if you want to service them the same way. So it's also very easy for us to understand who's our competition. It's not every building in the city. It's every building within a couple miles. Yeah. I think yeah, our silence, Chris, is a reflection of the fact that we're we're in over our heads here with this real estate conversation with you. I mean, you're, you're, you're putting on a master class right now. And I just honestly am listening and, and kind of soaking it up. So it's it's fat. Well, that's the fun of this podcast. It. That's the fun of this podcast because I come off every episode like, yeah, I want to do that. Right. Like I wanted to, I wanted to be a consultant when I, when I hung up with Sean O'Dowd, right. I want to be a, a class B industrial investor. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, you're, Chris is raising a fund. I'm like, do you take $5,000 checks? Just asking for a friend. Yeah, <laughs> so Chris, you, you not only have you been a successful investor, like we talked about, and you started as kind of a, a, you know, a hustler doing your own deals, being your own partner, but you built a big successful organization in Fort capital that has received, you know, a ton of accolades and a ton of respect and a ton of media coverage. You mentioned reading the book, good to great, but how did you transition from just being a, you know, a young real estate investor to now being this very successful, you know, corporate executive? What was that process like? I will say, I, I think it goes without saying a ton of, a lot of hard work. Like I think now more than ever, people need to hear none of this is easy. Like yeah. it's not easy. What's the meme that was on Twitter the other day? We don't do this because it's easy. We do it because we thought it would be easy. Um, <laughs> the, the flag. Uh -huh. I love that. I need that flag for my office. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So I would start there. What I would really say though is, and it sounds cliche, but what I've learned over time is cliche things are cliche because they're true. We really said, this is all about the people. Like every element of getting to the next level is going to be about hiring great people, treating them incredibly well, training them incredibly well, getting them to buy into a, a vision or a mission that they can believe in. And all those things sound like, oh, that's business talk. But if, if I went and went back to good to great or pick any great company that you love, what do they all have in common? They all have these great teams, leadership, ability. And what happens to companies over time that were once great that aren't, they lose all that. Yeah. Because great teams stay innovative. They know what their customers want. Their cust they stay in touch with their customers. So some people say, oh, well, their product just started sucking. Yeah, occasionally, if you're in the technology business, even great people couldn't save the, the Polaroid camera. But at, to some level, in most businesses, it's people. And so we made a decision that we were going to focus a ton of resources and attention on building a great team and a great culture realizing that that was kind of going to be the moat long-term because all, all our, all of what we do that you see that you hear about is an output of what our team has done. And I think the other quote that I love is every system is perfectly designed for the results that it's getting. And like Brent B. Shore says, small businesses don't stay small on purpose. You know, unless you, like if you take hamburgers, it's been proven that you can build a global hamburger brand. There's been yeah. like a hundred global hamburger brands. Now, unless you make the decision that you just want to own a hamburger shop in, in town and you just want to own one, what's the difference between the group that couldn't get past one store and the group that got to 10,000 stores? It's not the hamburger. Right. It's the people. It's the thought process. It's the culture. It's it's what you incentivize. It's It's all the things. And so 
for a long time, I think it was more about me and a smaller group. And then we had to turn that over. And today I'm the chairman, I'm the founder chairman. I don't even, I haven't run the company day to day for three years. That had to be also me realizing along the way, I'm not the best person to take this company forward day to day. It yeah. doesn't fit my DNA. And so that was another people decision that I had to call on myself is like, you got to put the business before you yourself. That's that level five and, uh, leadership that Jim Collins preaches right there. Well, I think a lot of people, especially in today's generation, everybody's like, you got to love what you do. It's got to, you, yeah. it's, you know, it's your purpose. It's all he's saying. And it is some of that, but some people take it to the degree where they literally think of that they're more important than the business and their people. And as soon as you start finding that inside of a company, you start finding a company that's not going to work. Now you could look at WeWork that got to some huge yeah. size, but what's the narrative there? It all revolved around this crazy founder. Yeah, it was bad leadership. Was a, correct. Yeah. That business had well, actually no chance that, long term. That's a really tough psychological thing for someone to do, right? Because you've built this business, Chris. Like Fort Capital exists because... Chris Powers did things 19 years ago, and it is for the benefit of you. But you're right for that business to transition into something that's going to be high quality for Chris Powers long term. You have to disassociate yourself from the entity. And that's I think that's why, you know, to, to your comment about Brent's point about small businesses staying small, a lot of them stay small because they're a kingdom built for a specific individual. And somebody made the quip the other day, and this is a business buying comment, but they had a seller who couldn't help but brag about how important he was to the business that he was trying to sell. And that's so antithetical to the value of the organization and what he was trying to do in the process, but he couldn't help himself after the broker had positioned it as a, you know, absentee owner to get in there and talk about how key the, you know, the relationships were around him. And so, but I think that's really hard to do. And I think a lot of people struggle. So how did you do that? Right. This is your baby. And you yeah, say, I'm going to turn it over to somebody else. Was that, was that hard for you? Yeah, it was. And before I answer that, the thought that came to mind is like, you go talk to like boomer business owners and you're like, one, they never called themselves founders or like whatever titles have been made up. Co-founder. They were like, I'm the owner. Yeah. And they're like, well, what do you do for a living? They're like, we serve our customers. That's, that's why we exist. Like that narrative changed over time to where the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world and the tech scene made it these superheroes out of our out of our entrepreneurs. So anyway, I just think that's an interesting phenomenon and something we need to get back to. But how did I get how did I realize it? One, a couple things. I I I started noticing I was not happy at work. This company I'd built and I'd loved for so long, I was no longer enjoying but it's not like that immediately was a thing. So what did I do first? I went and got personality tested across a couple different personality tests. The key one that changed my life was culture index. Some people, there's predictive yes, index, but culture We talk index. about this all the time. Culture index is, is wild. It's the so greatest thing. Your, yeah. If you ask me one of the five things that changed our business life, it was culture index. And I'd go to the grave saying any company that's not using culture index or something like it is, is missing out. Yeah. So we talked about this in the last episode with with Reg Zeller and Josh Schultz and went through our different yeah. results. I'm fascinated to know what what, what is your culture? I'm a daredevil. Testing? I'm ah, a daredevil. Okay. Oh, so damn. is Reg. So is Reg. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm a daredevil with like philosopher tendencies. I have a huge pattern, very forward thinking, future, not a lot of detail, 
like to be scattered throughout the day, hard to focus on any one thing. But anyway, so started taking those and then the results like kind of came back and I was like, I didn't quite equate it yet. In fact, I was like, oh, I'm this visionary. That's what they call everybody. Or like an EOS, it's like visionary integrator. People yep. sometimes lean into that and think too much of this like visionary character, like there's some hero. Then I said, okay, I got an executive coach because I was like, I kept thinking I needed more people around me or like something was wrong. I didn't think I was the problem. I just thought, oh, if I have a COO or if I have a president or if I have this person, like all my problems will go away. So I went on Google or my partner did, and he found this guy, Lex Sisney, that wrote this book called Organizational Physics, which changed another life-changing book. And he had wrote this paper on like why not to hire a COO. And basically laid out this case that like, if your reasons for hiring a COO are these reasons, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, which my reasons for doing it were like all of those reasons. <laughs> so then we hired him as an executive coach. And I thought, oh, my thing going into it was like, I'm going to come out of this thing a year from now and be the best CEO that ever existed. And if you have a really good coach of, or a mentor or somebody they're not just agreeing with everything you said. It didn't take but about three to four months for the first shockwave to go through me of, oh my gosh, I am not supposed to be the CEO of this company. I didn't agree with it immediately because I was like, most people yeah. have an ego about it. They're like, well, I got to be. That's my lifelong mission. And then a couple months further went by and it became very clear that I was not the CEO and that my partner, Jason, who was COO at the time, was supposed to be the CEO. And so what did we do? Like, I came to him and I said, I don't think I'm supposed to be the CEO. And we put together a plan to transition. And that was four years ago. And we made up a title for me, founder, executive chairman. And that allowed me to go back to my genius zone and do things that I enjoyed doing. And it allowed me to get things off my plate that I shouldn't. And Jason and the team have grown the business exponentially since I left. It's the business has thrived since I moved out of CEO. And I can honestly sit here today and tell you if I had stayed in control day to day, we would not be where we are today. Yeah. I put it up on the screen here and I'll, I'll stop sharing, but um, <laughs> what'd you put up there? It was the daredevil background type. You're high <laughs> energy in the, in the right <laughs> environment. You're going to drive crazy growth. But I do think there's a point where an organization, and, and Reg talks about the same thing, it can actually become destructive because destructive. of your level of, of risk-taking and limit-pushing, which isn't ideal for a mature organization. But fascinating, because you're right. Like the EOS model and traction, you've got your integrator, you've got your visionary, and I think it's easy to say, I'm a, I'm a visionary. But within that visionary category, I mean, you've got rainmakers and you've got daredevils and you've got all kinds of people that will do different things enterprisers yeah 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 culture culture index is fascinating we we tell the story of how we took ours um in the last pot so we won't belabor it but um it's it's a game changer for sure it's yeah. amazing all right so i think we're I, time, I would guess. end that ramp i would end that ramp by just saying and this is not a this is like permission if you're listening to this and you think for one second man, maybe I shouldn't be the CEO of my company. I would really lean into that because again, we've glamorized this role as it's like the end all be all. Yeah. 
And one, one thing I love about Elon Musk is he's like, he calls himself the CEO, but he's like, it doesn't even mean any, like we've, we've tried to make it be this thing. Like, here's your job when you're CEO. And I would tell you, if you're more of a founder mentality or a starter or a visionary, you're very likely at some point, not the CEO. Like you said, over time, CEOs need to be less risk-taking and more like process building continue to get a little bit better each day, but not these huge quantum leaps that big pattern daredevils want to make. And so yeah. I would just give anybody permission that you're not losing. You're not a failure. You're not a loser. If you are the CEO of your company now and you shouldn't be. Well, I'm, I'm a little biased, but I, I think that, that there's something amazing, Chris, to, to the idea of what you've done of creating something out of nothing. Four Capital is a creature of Chris Powers imagination That's and true. efforts and hard yeah. work and you built it to a place and and now it is a self-sustaining mature organization and you're doing a podcast like that's fucking yeah. cool. excuse my language so yeah. um, <laughs> kudos to you for Thank for, you. for building the life that you have because it's it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty neat to watch yeah. so um, thank all right. you guys on that note I think that's it Chris anything else you want to say before we wrap no y'all are Awesome. This is awesome to jam with y'all. I apologize. My computer gave me a fit, but I hope it turns out great. And like, I love what y'all are doing. I appreciate that, Chris. And the admiration's mutual. We love, we love watching what you're doing with the fort and yeah, excited to see where you take your business. Kevin, I, we're going to where your happen. CEO takes your business. Yeah. That's yeah. The case, maybe. <laughs> I'm just not going to get in the way. My, my <laughs> tendency is to jump in the way any chance I get. Yeah. All right. Well, Kevin, I'm going to come see you in Coppell, or maybe we'll meet up mutually. I know we've been trying to make it happen. Yeah, we, we can grab lunch and go to her some Class B industrial around Coppell. So it'll be great. You'll, it'll the only be quick. Thing seeing gonna, it'll be real <laughs> quick. Class B. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, All right, guys. All right. Thanks, Chris. Talk soon. Thanks. See you guys. Bye, Eric. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.